0: Dr. Ethel Tongohan, an associate professor of politics at York University. This is Academic Anties. Today's episode is all about Turning Red, the new U.S. Pixar film about a 13-year-old Chinese-Canadian girl, mei Lee, who finds out that when she gets emotional, she turns into a big red panda. mei also has to navigate life as a middle schooler and all that this entails, which includes learning how to manage her crushes, bullies, and strict parents. Turning Red is also a movie that is about fitting in and about the vital importance of friendships, which makes it a perfect topic for academic aunties. So today, we're unpacking this film and be warned, there are spoilers. We're joined by my dear friend Dr. Ivansu, who has a lot of thoughts on the film. We'll be talking about the parallels between Mei Lin's experiences of attempting to fit in and how she is read, and our own experiences in the academy and how we as Asian women are read. We reel against the model minority myth. We think about how these boxes that were put into are similar to mei and her mom and how these boxes are constraining and oftentimes work to our detriment because they merely reinforce a system that wasn't built for us.
1: Auntie Yvonne, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes. Well, first of all, thank you so much, Ethel, for inviting me. Similar to you, this has been top of mind. I watched it when it came out on Friday with my cousin and we loved it. And I'm so happy we could talk about it here, but also within academic context as well. So I'm Yvonne Su. I'm a Chinese Canadian that was born in China and I came to Canada when I was six and I grew up just outside Toronto in a small town um, and I, my parents wanted me to be a doctor, a medical doctor, <laughs> pediatrician specifically. So I I did become a doctor, just a different type of doctor. Uh, And I am very happy to be at York as an assistant professor in the Department of Equity Studies. And a lot of my work actually revolves around forced migration, refugee, uh, immigration, migration. So in a way, it all comes full circle um, because my experiences growing up informed what I wanted to study. Uh, similar to the director, Domi Shi, in terms of how her experiences growing up led to this film. And it was so successful. And something I said to my students, because I showed this to my students, <laughs> is that um, the personal is political, right? And and here we, here it is, and that representation matters. And you kind of see everything that we try to teach our students become so real and, and represented by Pixar and Disney. And there's this amazing a glass ceiling breaking director, you know, at the height of her career. Well, probably not even at the height of career. She's probably just starting. She's a trailblazer. But all this is, is great to showcase to our students. 100%.
0: I also talked to my Diasporas and the Limits of Citizenship class on Tuesday, um, and it was related to the theme of the class, right? But yeah, I mean, I also want to kind of shout out, uh, you know, Torontonian Domi Shi. She got her degree from Sheridan College, and get this, Auntie Yvonne, her mom was a PhD student at Oisi at the University of Toronto. Oh my gosh! I mean, this is a Torontonian who who did well, right? <laughs> yes,
1: yeah. Representation—it's great.
0: Yeah. Well, you know what? Let's talk about the film
1: uh, itself. So, yes. what did you think? It was so relatable, so relatable, uh, and of course, you know, because we're, it, we're we follow social media, we know there was. Uh, white man critic who said that Ugh. it was not relatable. Story, the I know. So you can imagine my feelings when I found it so relatable. And I, sh- I think she did, and the whole team did such a great job of not just like depicting the experiences of a 13-year-old Chinese Canadian, the intergenerational struggles, what her life would look like, balancing school, and kind of work, if you think about it. She kind of worked at the temple right <laughs> and try yeah. to manage all these right because she worked we I, mean, I don't think they really painted it as work but it's also a story that many immigrant uh, children can relate to who possibly did have to work one way or another i helped my parents out at a chinese food restaurant every single day after school right get off the bus go work at the restaurant until i left for university at 18 so that was like too real and then we know other immigrants you know children or students who have to work at laundromats and convenience stores or just like tutor to make money or like paper routes. So that job aspect was, was super relatable. Um, and then in general, I think the film was just great at bringing to light a lot of issues that are usually aren't really talked about again, especially the intergenerational aspect, Mm uh, uh, mainly relationship with, um, her mother Ming and then Ming's relationship with her mother and then Mm. the aunties Mm. right Mm -hmm, so like mm -hmm. you don't really see all those different dynamics in one film right especially a western film
0: it is it is a western film it's set in Toronto right in contrast to other Disney movies the most common point of contrast would be like Mulan which you know I mean I watched it I mean I liked it but I didn't really relate to it. I mean, you know, what I mean, we're in, you know, it wasn't really part of kind of my day-to-day realities. It was a fantasy. It was but very this othering,
1: week. really. Okay, yeah, but yeah. how don't you yeah, find one very othering because it is, because it's so traditionally, tra- well, there's the two versions, right? But I would say mm-hmm. both versions were very traditionally Chinese or that's what they were trying to portray, mm-hmm. right? There's mm-hmm. definitely in the first one, the animated one with um uh, uh Right, Eddie Murphy. Murphy. Eddie Murphy was the dragon. right? And he, was, and he brought a lot of humor, right? And I think they yeah. tried to westernize it through his humor. But the imagery, right, yeah. was very, like, Chinese. And, and all those storyline, you can kind of make it relatable.
0: It was very pan-Asian. Like, I remember when Mulan was out, I was young, right? And, uh, you know, I remember my friends being like, oh, look, you can be like Mulan when we would play princesses. And I'd be like, I want to be Ariel. What are you talking about? Right. But the thing is, I remember kind of even back then, and I was really little, like hearing coverage, uh, they actually took a lot of different elements from like different East Asian countries and kind of slap them yes. together in the movie. So are right. In terms of kind of authenticity, it wasn't really there. I mean, not that, you know, we can ever expect a Disney movie to be that authentic, but then, you know, this movie turning red, it was completely relatable. It was completely authentic. We're both from Toronto. I mean, it, it I mean, obviously it's a stylized Toronto, right? But it, it, it featured the CN tower. It featured Chinatown. So it was, it did kind of, made clear that this came from you know someone who knows the cdd knows toronto and knows knows kind
1: of the cultural elements too right and you know what i can speak from this because i'm cantonese right Mm -hmm. and the film is of a cantonese family right you won't really know that if you don't speak cantonese but i think really kudos to Nomi for like really putting her foot down and not letting it be pan-Asian because you're absolutely right that Disney has had an issue with that like Raya and the Raya or Raya and the Last Dragon was Mm, criticized uh for that Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. where they really put all different types of like Asian culture and like mashed it together right Mm -hmm. and that pissed off a lot of the the audience but Mm -hmm. in this case because I'm Cantonese, I can recognize that like the TV show she was watching was Cantonese. Oh, really? Okay. Right? Yeah. The type of food she was eating was clearly Cantonese. And then the, the chant and it's the style of the temple, you know? So there was a lot of detail and a lot of authenticity that like and true to her
0: how she grew up. Yeah, and so I think as someone who is Cantonese, are there elements of the movie that you were like oh my gosh that actually is real and do you think these elements are things that others who are not Cantonese would have missed well
1: yes the the ritual so Mm. I I you know don't quote me on this I have not you know looked at every Disney film ever um but when films in general but I don't think that Cantonese or Chinese, because it's not that one was not necessarily Cantonese, but they were chanting in Cantonese. Mm. Those types of rituals with the moon, with the circle, with the coming together, with the shaman. Like that's I don't think that's ever really shown on film. Mm. Right? Mm-hmm. So I mm-hmm. thought that they had captured it really well in this idea of the spirit world and the and the panda going through various realms. Like mm. that was really interesting. And I think it's interesting because it actually gives um you know, a lot of Chinese immigrants, an opportunity to explain something mm. that is so hard to explain. So like mm-hmm. growing up, I would often have to explain my mom's kooky beliefs. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. Cause like, there's no what? explanation like would just be like, Oh, like you, I don't know. Let me think. It's like you, there's certain days you can't shower. Okay. <laughs> right. I think on new years, I think mm-hmm. on new years, Chinese new year's day, you can't mm-hmm. shower because mm-hmm. you're, mm-hmm. you're washing away your luck. Mm, right mm-hmm, i'm sure mm-hmm, in the philippines mm-hmm. culture there's something so, there's things that are similar mm-hmm, there are just mm-hmm. strange beliefs that like we can't explain to people who don't have a similar cultural background or like you have to wear certain colors on certain days or like there's certain bracelets that are of a certain color or a certain fabric or jade mm-hmm. you know that that gives you protection that because there's not that much exposure to these ideas in the western world when you tell people about it like what So for them to kind of show it so visually and for it to all make sense was very like, I guess the word is legitimizing. One thing that you mentioned that I wanted to unpack a
0: little bit is this notion of intergenerational trauma, right? And Mm -hmm. uh, kind of looking at, some of the responses on like Asian American, Asian Canadian Twitter, there's been a lot of mixed responses to that. So um, the response. So for me, I'll just share this. I was like, you know what? It's bang on. I mean, I think um, her mom. Um, you can see in the beginning of the movie. You know, she had an award as a small business owner. She's really trying hard to establish herself. So she is falling in line with model minority tropes, right? And for her mom, um, her version of success, and perhaps maybe her version of trying to protect her daughter is by kind of embodying Mm. all of these trappings of success, right? And that's, that's traumatic too. And we meet the grandma and you're like, okay, I guess this is why she is who she is. So for me, I didn't read this story as affirming or stereotyping Asian parents and Asian daughters as kind of being ensnared in this oppressive relationship. I thought there was a little bit more nuance, but, you know, a lot of folks on Asian Canadian, Asian American Twitter were like, oh, it's kind of falling in line with these stereotypes as well. There's like, you know, these stories that we need to escape from. And I was wondering, Auntie Yvonne, what your take was on that.
1: I totally get why there is a debate. And I would say that in a weird way, I think the director and the team steered away from getting too deep into that because they don't really share Ming's story. Mm. Mm-hmm. I almost feel mm-hmm. like they kind of knew that was going to be a really difficult thing to tackle and they weren't going to satisfy anybody on that mm-hmm. topic. So mm-hmm. they almost skipped it a little bit because like the only true sense of the struggle that Ming experiences is when, um, and I guess we're, these are spoilers, right? I mean, I don't like anybody Oh yeah, I'll put a spoiler warning at the beginning of the episode. <laughs> Right? But like when the young Mei Li meets the young Ming, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. they're almost around ish, the same age, and she's so sad and she's trying to make her mom happy. But like that's the only glimpse we get. So we don't really, we're all making these assumptions. Mm. So I think the director is clever mm. by saying, you know, how you assume Ming grew up is your baggage, actually. Mm. Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. if you th- you know you, you you watch it because of the scar on the grandma's face, because mm-hmm. of her saying that they had a big blowout, because she didn't approve of the of the husband, right? You can read that to be extremely oppressive, extremely traumatizing, all those things, or you can read it without the cultural aspect and ex- and assume that it is very normal. Mm. Right. There are disapprovals of people's partners across all cultures. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. most of the time, your mom does not like your boyfriend or girlfriend because <laughs> you're little miss perfect. Why would mm. anybody be good enough for you? Right. So I thought that was ve- I think that's very clever from the director's perspective. And that's also why people love films is because pe- so many people can go and have a really different reaction to it. And kind of see what they want to see. I mean, there's a lot of confirmation bias too.
0: I love I love that you're affirming that it's confirmation bias for some. And I think what you said was really bang on. I mean, maybe let's not see this as a stereotypical portrayal of how Asian moms treat their Asian children, because I can tell you, based on conversations with non-Asian friends, that we all have baggage from our parents, right? That, you know, the type of kind of strictness that Ming displays, that's not an Asian thing. I mean, I've had like, you know, I've had other friends being like, oh, my gosh, like, you you know my parents are super strict they won't let me do this da 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 like it's not it's so in other words it's not just a Chinese thing or it's not even just an Asian thing no. maybe we should take out that filter and realize maybe this is just a parent-child thing and maybe I don't know someone said maybe this is a boomer parenting thing I don't know maybe like it It, it d- depends on how we look at it the filters we're looking at and the baggage the baggages that we carry with us right
1: yeah well and also like I said I showed this to my class and my class is extremely diverse so there were mm-hmm. lots of students from different backgrounds who said like, my mom is exactly like this, right? She's Latino or or <laughs> she's a South Asian, right? And like, they're super strict with the exact same things. And of course they want us to do well in school, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So it is a very cross-cultural film and I think it's very relatable. The other thing I did think about that I couldn't really um, kind of really work out and this is you know, why we having this conversation want to bring you into it is that I thought it was really interesting that Ming was traditionally dressed the whole time initially I was like, it's because of the temple right but mm-hmm, so this is mm-hmm. her outfit for the temple but then that was her outfit for the whole film mm. so it's kind of like it makes me think of like you know is it smart that she dresses the way that people expect her to dress and look mm. right or is that a way of protecting herself Right, because mm. she is what you expect an Asian, a well-dressed Asian woman at a temple to look like, mm. or is that some form of oppression or some form of confinement that she has put on herself?
0: No, you know what? I think there's something there, and I also think, and we can now talk about, you know, her panda. Right? I remember yes. messaging you, Auntie Yvonne, because um, you know, listeners were obviously talking about this before we started taping this. Um, I, I was. Kind of sad, actually, for Ming, because then when her panda came out, I was like, holy, you know, it's this big panda. The biggest panda so big, bigger than buildings. So that meant that she had a lot of rage, that there were a lot of things about herself that she had to keep in. And then at the end, I actually thought that she would be okay with having her panda coexist with her. Right. Like, you know, I was hoping actually that that would be. Everyone's journey. And yet, you know, she, Mm. you know, said goodbye to the panda and she became, you know, her old self again. Right. And so I was thinking, you know, why is her panda so big? What moments has she experienced that has led her to kind of suppress, you know, her panda? Like, in other words, you know, her like her her husband said, oh, I only saw that. <laughs> and, you know, her her mom told us that we couldn't get married. So I keep thinking of these moments where she'd had to tamp that down moments that defined her and made her more restrained, made her
1: need to be in control all the time. Right. Yeah. I, I was shocked too. I think that was definitely a plot twist that mm. I think most people didn't see coming. That her panda, like her, her panda, was the size of the Sky Dome, mm-hmm, right? It was mm-hmm. gigantic in proportion to everyone else. And I think maybe it's some commentary on how, like, like that generation before now, in order to survive as an immigrant, because we're assuming I'm, I'm assuming she's an immigrant. I mean, most mm-hmm. people in Toronto are. Immigrants she could be first or second generation, but the assumption is she's an immigrant, Emily Lee was either born here or came here very early. But if I reflect on my parents' experiences, yeah, they did have to keep their emotions in way more than mm. I did, right? Mm. So an, a clear example in all these examples, language barrier, mm. which obviously we're going to assume because we don't know you know Ming speaks perfect English, right? but mm-hmm. a lot of immigrants, even second generation immigrants might not speak perfect. English. So, I know that with my parents, they, you know, did not speak English. I translate for them always, and I mm. remember they always faced so much discrimination. Mm. You know, either uh, either blatantly overtly or like more systematic. So, we would just go to shops and my dad would get charged prices that were higher than 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 other people in mm. negotiations, and he would get very visibly upset and he and also, Chinese culture is a loud culture, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. we're, we are <laughs> yeah, back in yeah. China. Very busy, <laughs> <so> you're, <Yep. laughs> you're shouting, right? Like at dinner, it's very common courtesy to be very loud, mm. right? Because mm-hmm. you're, you're, mm-hmm. you're, It's festive, right? So, you know, he would talk very loudly, but imagine he gets upset and he's very loud. And like, it's just like the people around can't handle that type of energy. Mm. So like, mm-hmm. it sounds horrible for me to say, but I would say like, dad, like I'll handle it. I know mm. how to talk to these people, mm. right? And I have to be mm-hmm. very calm and have to say, I'm sorry, my father's just upset that it seems like the price that he's getting is higher than the prices that other people mm. are getting. And when we do a calculation, yeah, there's actually a bit of an inflation or you know, you're saying that um, you have to charge us for X and Y, but it doesn't seem like you actually do the services for X and Y, you know? So I actually can understand that the generation before me just had to, because of stereotypes, because of racism, because of, of so many challenges that immigrants face, especially first generation, that they are told to keep quiet. They are told to suppress all their emotions and their feelings, put their head down, work hard, make money, suffer, sacrifice, so the next generation can be successful and thrive, you know. And this goes back to my comment about how the director may not have focused so much on Ming's actual backstory, so people can... Put their own spit on it and put make their own assumptions because that's what I thought when I first watched it reflecting on my parents' immigrant experience and the difficulties they faced.
0: Watching the film, too, I was also thinking about notions of being a model minority, right? Because one filter Mm. through which we could understand the film is that you know May's being asked to conform to a certain you know a certain set of well not whatever she's she's being asked to conform she's being asked to to kind of follow her parents she's being asked to uh, be as perfect as always right like in the beginning of the movie you can see that she has a pluses that she helps with the temple and her friends are like oh you're brainwashed and you know um, that's actually super hurtful but you know Towards the end, uh, she's, a- she's able to kind of tell her mom, look, I'm just going to go with my friends. It's OK. You can let go a little bit. And I'm almost thinking, you know, even I, as someone who's like, you know, way older than 13, even I have problems um, trying to assert myself and trying not to fall into that model minority
1: trap. Yes. The model minority trap is like intense because yeah. the idea is that like don't make trouble. I think Mm. that was a big theme throughout the whole thing. Like, don't make trouble, right? Don't lie. Just do well in school, right? Keep all your emotions in. Don't burden other people with your emotions, Mm. right? And I think that's what we're told as the model minority is that we have to be perfect. But on top of of being perfect, we're also like nice Mm -hmm. and like subdued, Mm -hmm. right? We never cause trouble. If anything, Mm -hmm. we're extra helpful. Yeah. Right? Yep. And we're Mm -hmm. not hostile at Mm -hmm. all, not hostile, can't be hostile, right? Mm -hmm. And all of that is just like pressing and holding us down. So again, the metaphor is great, because we do as just normal humans, of course, we have emotions, of course, there are issues, hostilities, of course, we should stand up for ourselves, right? If injustice is happening, but we're told all the time, that's not good. Keep it in. Keep it Mm in, right? Don't, Mm -hmm. Don't poof out and hurt others. Mm, mm, don't poof out and hurt others well, that's what happened when she jumped off the building when she was being um, I would argue bullied the whole time mm. by that brat Tyler mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the model minority thing to do when you're being bullied when you're being blackmailed mm. which mm-hmm. he blackmailed her Tyler about calling her mom yeah that's what I mean so, so here so I guess the villain is Tyler really oh. <laughs> but essentially you've got, a, you've got somebody who's bullying her And she's being told all the time, like, not to make trouble and to go along with it. And Mm. then when she did poof out and lash out and jumped on him, when she called her mom a psycho, which, of course, is is, is too far, right? That was, like, seen as, like, super bad. And I think... Mm -hmm. The reason it was seen as super bad, and of course, it is violence. We don't condone violence. But I think one of the reasons it was seen as super bad is because she had been a model minority the whole time. She had been very good the whole time. She never really stood up for herself any of the many times that Tyler had um, bullied her. Right? She she tried to throw a ball at, at him. But, you know, so stuff like that. So I think that's definitely a very strong trope. And I think we can relate to that. Cause you know we get told all the time we don't don't rock the boat on anti-ethel don't rock the boat right do you really have to stand up for yourself do you have to say that just keep quiet
0: yeah triggering isn't it it's super triggering and I think one of the things that I'm learning um, in academia is that thus far you know um, high school undergrad you know I was kind of getting the grades I was kind of checking all the boxes, right? Like model minority, you know, debate team, national honor society, all of that crap, right? Um, And then we enter like academia, we're professors, and you would think that merit would get us where we're supposed to be. But then- You realize, oh, my goodness, you know, being a model minority actually harms us. Uh, First, because we're kind of indoctrinated into not rocking the boat and going along for the sake of going of getting along, even as even if getting along screws us over. And secondly, it kind of, I don't know, stereotypes us right? That's why Mm -hmm, people are mm -hmm. like, oh, ask Yvonne, ask Ethel to be on this committee because they're really good at it, right? A service committee that's- Ask them to be note takers. Ask them to be note takers Ah. because they're good at it, right? And you're thinking, wow, I'm actually being put in a box here and it's very restrictive. And I wonder if you have thoughts on how to break free from that and how academia does kind of essentialize us into these model minority roles, us being, um, well, Asian women, but also immigrant women, racialized women.
1: Auntie Ethel, what you said was just so relatable, especially the very beginning with the whole like, we work so hard. And as women of color in academia, as young women of color, we know how much more we had to do, how much more publications we had to pump out. You wrote a book. Gosh, Mm -hmm. how many people write a book at your career level? Nobody right? But you've probably felt the need to write a book, even though your white colleagues maybe had not even one Mm -hmm. Mm journal publication, right? Mm -hmm. I had 10, I think, when I applied for my job at York, that's how Mm -hmm. much extra work I felt I Mm -hmm. needed to do. Uh, But it's so relatable, because, you know, we're professors, and we got that merit, we got that job. But I don't know if it feels like this image wise to you, but I feel like I'm climbing this tall ladder, there's this light at the end, and I and I I'm gonna get there. And I think getting there is being a professor. And the second I grab it, it all falls down, mm. and another set of ladders show up. That's how I've been feeling about this whole process. Because when we're in our PhD, the goal is always to get the professor job. Work so hard, sacrifice everything. We get the job. We overcome all these barriers, and then a completely new set of barriers show up, and it just feels so insufferable. It feels like. And and I can't see the end of that light. Like, sorry, that ladder. You know, Mm -hmm. you're a couple years ahead of me. I don't know if you see the light either. It just feels like we're just going to keep climbing and climbing.
0: And I think what's awful is that you realize the entire edifice is flawed, right? And that there are people shaking the ladder so you can't ascend. But also that structurally, um, this institution actually functions to our detriment, to our collective detriment, right? And I think I shared this on mm-hmm. Twitter and I think you had responded as well where um, I was recently um, told, uh, cause I was in the running for this research position, this research, this thing, uh, oh, that she has too many publications, that you have too many publications. And for me, I was like, wait, why is that a bad thing? And then I realized, oh, it's because as Asian women, we're being stereotyped as being robotic, Right? As not Mm, having, mm, you know, not having the intentionality behind the projects that we produce, that we're just kind of churning it out like, I don't know, robotic little Asians, right? And it's like, wow, that's, but then the rules change, right? You're like, you change the rules. That was always the gold standard, but then you're changing the rules at the last minute to benefit others who don't
1: have as much to make them look better. It's so messed up. And it's so messed up that we can't just lift each other up, Mm. we can't just encourage each other right if one colleague irrespective of their background there's, there's the color of their skin is doing well you can't just say bravo mm-hmm. and i think mm-hmm. that's what's really hard to face is having your colleagues almost be intimidated by you to see mm-hmm. your accomplishments not as a success for the department or for the university but as a threat and i find that such a narrow way to look at it it's a ve- the whole zero sum game type of approach whereas we you know we see things as win win we're, mm-hmm. we're very collaborative individuals, and that's why you know, we've gotten to where we are because we see other people as equal. We want to work together and produce better work. As a result, we're not spending time tearing each other down, shaking the ladder, trying to kick it away, right? Because mm-hmm. that, that, that won't serve us anyways. Imagine if we did any of that as women of color. Oh, we would be demonized. We would be villainized. We'd get
0: canceled. Honestly, this is why May's story is so is so empowering too right like rather than shutting sure. up rather than being you know quiet like you know let 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 ourselves shine right like don't you feel sometimes when you go into these spaces that you have to kind of you know diminish yourself diminish your you shine out. yeah Yeah, but sometimes I don't want to poof out because I'm afraid, right? I'm afraid of the backlash. And so, I don't know, the story makes me think, you know, May so... I mean, and maybe intergenerationally it's easier too. Maybe that is the story the movie's telling where, you know, she can poof out. She can be both. You can be loud. You can be accepted. It's okay, right? And I kind of, I think it does end on that
1: hopeful note. But maybe that is the strategy. You ask for strategies Mm -hmm. to deal with the, you know, that type of pressure that people or that type of um, the stereotypes people put on us to be the model minority in academia. And I think that's the that's a coping mechanism is to know that we have an inner red panda right mm. that's more powerful that's <laughs> big and that's perhaps more true and that we could let the red panda out and poof out and take up our space especially in situations where we have the expertise i'm sure you've been in many meetings where you are the expert on this topic mm-hmm. yet someone mm-hmm. is undermining you all the time and you just got to poof out and be like yeah i've got a book on this i've got x many you know grants on this and and you just got to drop it right? And and set those boundaries and legitimize yourself. And there are other times where we have to keep it in and we have to play the game, right? But maybe that's the lesson is that we need to learn to control uh, the, those two sides for ourselves so that we're not just conforming all the time and being quiet.
0: I did like what you said there about kind of unleashing our inner red panda. I think that's such a beautiful metaphor. Um I did you know, in the few minutes that we have left, also want to talk about sexuality.
1: Yes! (laughs) Um, Love it.
0: I mean, you were a 13-year-old girl once. I was a 13-year-old girl once. In fact, I oftentimes think I'm still a 13-year-old girl. (laughs) What do you think of this portrayal of of me and crushes and kind of hormones (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> yes. I loved it. And, and I, th- the only critique I had though, was that, you know, a lot of immigrant girls don't experience that type. Well, they experience the hormones obviously at 13, but they don't experience that type of empowerment until later. Mm. Right. Or like this, like really realizing it. Does that make sense? Like, cause it mm. seems like she's going through this journey and she's kind of realizing what's happening and th- all that. Right. And like the controlling of the emotions. Like, I thought it was a little ambitious, that, that as a 13 year old, she had that much mm-hmm. <laughs> insight and, and, and could control her emotions like that. I felt I probably did that at 18. But still, the, the, the idea is still there. It's still relatable. The drawings, like feeling so embarrassed at school for certain things, like having those desires, loving boy, <laughs> boy bands. I loved <laughs> the music. They did a great job with the music. They- they, I thought it was excellent. It was definitely captured. Yeah.
0: two thousand two, well, early two thousands era, like in Insane. Back, I think the Backstreet Boys were a little bit before that, right? Yes. and so, I mean, I absolutely loved it. I actually like have been listening to the soundtrack because I'm like, oh my gosh, look, it's my new jam, right? Because um, you know that's I was yeah. like we were young in two thousand two or younger in two thousand two, so I thought that was super accurate. And going back to sexuality, I really
1: like that like. Because of how she grew up, she felt so bad. I think the guilt is so relatable. Oh, right. Because I think in certain cultures, it's okay, right? You like boys, go for it. It's fine. (laughs) But like this idea (laughs) that she was bringing shame to the family, that her grades were going to go down—you know, like it was so relatable because that's that's what's all tied up in there.
0: That's a hundred percent so relatable. So I remember. Oh my gosh, like, you know, I was 13 and I was writing these like pretend letters, like pretend love letters that my crush uh, wrote to me, even though it wasn't re- it wasn't my crush. My crush probably wouldn't be able to have that kind of developed language because I was taking it from like romance novels. Right. So I wrote that pretending it was my crush writing it to me. And of course, my mom like sees this and like calls me in and was like, what is oh. this? And then, you know, I was like, how dare you? You did not. And she was like, no, what is this? And I was like, no, it's just I wrote it. I wrote it to myself and then it was okay. But she was kind of side eyeing me. But
1: I was so embarrassed. I love like I love that you have such a similar story. And I'm sure so many people have similar stories. I never mm-hmm. wrote letters, but I definitely scribbled their names and I like use like, you know, colored pencils and like, you know, drew hearts and flames, all that jazz. Right. Everybody did that. It's so relatable.
0: And I think that's one thing that I wanted to kind of highlight as well, because there were a lot of detractors being like, yeah, 13 year old girls aren't like that. And I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> yes, they are. They are. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I lo- and I love the focus on girls, right? And that's mm-hmm. what's a big difference about this film. Like her crew was all girls, right? It was like giving a space to share a story that we don't really hear because we always hear about boys going through puberty. Yeah. Gosh, there's so many films, right? Where the coming of age focuses that, right? And here we are with a girl and it's, I'm not surprised some people are so shocked, right? That's just more commentary on what is available in the media that we have currently. We know it's not a shock.
0: It's not a shock. And I think, and I'd like to kind of end on this note and ask you another question as well. Love the friendships. I was like, oh my God, that girl group. I loved it. I'm like, you know, that that I think made the movie for me because they captured the dynamics really well. I remember my friends and I were all part of this New Kids on the Block fan club and we each had our boy, right? Joey McIntyre forever. Um, I mean, I think, you know, this movie is also an example of dissident friendships. Her friends were there to back her up. Mm. They were there to support her. And I guess, Auntie Yvonne, and I'll end on this note, what role have these dissident friendships and communities of care functioned for you in your journey
1: in the academy? Oh, I mean, in the academy, I think friendships arguably are the most important, right? I mean, it, it's such a lonely journey, especially the PhD. It's such a lonely journey. And, it's, and for me, where I went, it was such a white space that it was really important to, be, to reach out to people like yourself like, and, and friends that you have introduced me to that are having similar kind of lonely experiences in their institutions and to know that we have each other's backs, that we're going to help each other right? Because you said the system is not really designed for us. So we're Mm -hmm. all pushing a boulder up a hill but to know that we can push it together Mm -hmm. makes a huge difference. Honestly,
0: it's the community that matters and I think academia is so isolating, it's so lonely and knowing that Um, you also, Auntie Yvonne, have, like, a community to back you up. I think that's the essential message here. Mm -hmm. Much like in the movie, Maylin had, like, her friends to back her up. And it's always important to kind of you know, debunk this notion that academia is all about competition. No, I mean, if you shine, I shine too, right? (laughs) Yes, let's shine
1: together.
0: That is a great note to end on. Um, Auntie Yvonne, do you have social media if our listeners want to follow you?
1: Yes, my Twitter is Sue Yvonne, S-U-Y-V-O-N-E. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Yes, I'll see you soon, hopefully.
0: I love this conversation with Auntie Yvonne because it reminds me that the presence of fictional characters like Malin and the presence of women of color and racialized folks in academic spaces isn't only important because these show more representation. These are important because of the stories that can now be told, the experiences that can now be shared, and the norms that can now shift by the people who lived these realities. Turning red also shows the power of dissident friendships, of having a circle of people who are there for you, like Mei Lin and her friends and her aunties. Through these communities, transformative changes can take place, and so perhaps we should all be a bit more like Mei Lin and let our inner red pandas out. And that's academic aunties. You know, just over a year ago, we released our very first episode. We didn't really know what kind of response we would get to this podcast, but in the last 12 months, I've really enjoyed chatting with fellow academic aunties and hearing from you about how their stories made this fraught space a little bit better. We're so, so grateful to all of you for listening. Remember, you can always get in touch with us on Twitter at @academicante, and you can find out lots of ways to support us and even get some academic auntie swag at academicanties.com. Today's episode of Academic Antis was hosted by me, Dr. Ethel Tungohan, and produced by myself, Wayne Chu, and Dr. Nisha Knapp. Tune in next time when we talk to more Academic Antis. Until then, take care, be kind to yourself, and don't be an asshole.